Uh, God, just uh, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to come together, to open your word um, and learn something new about who you are, about who your son is, uh, Jesus, uh, how great and amazing he is. And I pray that as we learn about Jesus today, that we would follow him more closely, uh, that we would fall more in love with, with you and your word, um, and that we would just look more like your son every single day. Uh, so be with us, uh, speak to us through your word in a new way, in Jesus' name, amen. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I have not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Daniel. All right, so if, if you have enough conversations uh, with people about God, you know, the Bible or Jesus, you, you may hear something eventually along the lines of, you know, I, I like Jesus, but not really the Old Testament. You know, it's what the words that Jesus says, they're good. I can get with those. But the Old Testament, it, it's weird. It's confusing. It's uncomfortable a lot of the times. I, I just don't see how that fits in, how I need that. I'll just stick with, with the New Testament or, or what Jesus says. So you'll hear this, and maybe you feel this way. Maybe you've thought this before, and you wouldn't be alone. A lot of people uh, ha- struggle to see the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. Uh, they, they see a divide or a conflict between what Jesus did or, and said and the laws and the teachings that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, they can seem to be, you know, just, just completely different books at times, or, you know, they're different books, but completely different, you know, uh, uh, just concepts. I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very different. A lot of people feel that there's a big difference here between these, these two things. So, and this wasn't just a modern day problem. All right, this isn't just a problem for us today, but we'll, we'll find uh, today that actually this was an issue back when Jesus was walking around and teaching. Okay, people uh, who, particularly those who knew the Old Testament really well, all right, Jewish religious leaders, teachers, scribes, that sort of thing, um, they watched Jesus live and watched him teach, and, and they had a big problem with the way that Jesus related to the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it cre- created quite a bit of confusion and conflict. Okay? All through Jesus' life and ministry, we see this, this conflict happening because they're trying to figure out what, what do you actually think about this? How, do, how does it relate? And ultimately, it leads to Jesus being killed. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal for understanding Jesus, how he thought of himself, why he was such a controversial figure in the Jewish community. And it's also important for us today because if we desire to, to follow Jesus, how we read and understand and respond to the Old Testament matters if we truly want to be living in accordance to God's will. So we're going to talk about that relationship. Um, Before we dive in, uh, a little caveat. This is a really big topic. It's a huge topic, something that we can only scratch the surface uh, surface of in our our time together today. 
Um, but I hope that in the next 30 minutes or so, we can accomplish the same goal that we've said we have every week. And that is to, to get to know Jesus better, to understand his mission better. And then as we get to know Jesus better, we understand ourselves and the role that we play and what he is doing uh, better. So you may leave today um, and have questions. I have questions about what we're going to talk about. Uh, I think some of those questions may never be answered. Some will. But what, what I would say to you is, is don't just ignore those questions. Uh, wrestle with those questions. As, as you know, if you've been here before, we, we discuss at the end. Feel free to ask those questions. Maybe we can wrestle with them together. Because it's not the answers to the questions that help us grow, but it's actually the wrestling, the journey that helps us grow. So, again, big topic. Uh, we, we will have questions. We won't be able to cover and deal with everything. Um, press into those questions. Remember those questions and, and go on the journey. And maybe we can do that together at the end a little bit um, as we talk about this passage. Uh, so let's dive in. <clears throat> Verse 17, as Daniel read for us, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, and that, that's a term that Jesus used, means all the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, why would Jesus have to say this? Because he, because people thought that he was trying to get rid of the Bible, right? I mean, why would he have to say that if, if everyone was like, you know, you're, you seem to be in line with this. People thought that Jesus was trying to get rid of, of the, the Hebrew scriptures. So he had to say, no, that's, that's not what I'm doing. You may think that I'm, I'm trying to get rid of the Bible, but actually I've, I've come to do something different. I've come to fulfill them. And the whole conflict uh, really centers mostly on, on an important portion of the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Torah. Okay, Torah is just a Hebrew word. We translate it as law. And that gets at part of the, the kind of what it is, but it's, it's not complete. So we're just going to talk a little bit about what, what that is. So the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you have you know, a Bible in front of you, you flip to the first page, that's Genesis. Those first five books is what the Jewish people call the Torah. Okay, they had separate books uh, in their Bible or separate sections of their Bible that they titled. We put it all together and call it the Old Testament. And, uh, and we'll see in our passage that Jesus is, is really just going to deal with, with this, the Torah. Um, so naturally, that's what we're going to focus on. How does Jesus relate specifically to, to the Jewish Torah, which we translate as law? So three big questions um, we're going to answer during our time today. Uh, as I asked already, what is the Torah? Okay, what is the Torah? What purpose does it serve? Um, for, uh, among the Jewish community. That's number one. What is the Torah? Number two, why is there this apparent conflict between Jesus and the Hebrew Bible? Specifically, the, the section called the Torah. And number three, what does it mean when Jesus says he fulfills the scriptures? He didn't come to abolish, but came to fulfill. So what is the Torah? Why is there this conflict? Um, and what does it mean to fulfill the scriptures, as Jesus says? So number one, what is the Torah? As I said, we translate it as law. Um, but it's, it's really more than that. It includes commands that, that they take as law. But what the Torah is, is it's this epic story uh, in these five books that tells us of, of God, how he created the world and everything in it and, and how he created it and what he thought of it and how everything went wrong. Okay. 
And, and then it tells us how God uh, set apart this one guy named Abraham, um, through whom he would raise up a nation of people that would be his people. And, and through this nation, he would bless the whole world and, and just bring everything back uh, to the way he, he created it. So that's the story of the Torah. Um, it doesn't really go uh, uh, well most of the time, as we'll see. Um, but the overarching idea is that God is setting apart a community of people who relate to God and relate to others according to God's nature, according to his plan for the world. The Torah is a, is a covenant document between God and Israel. Covenant documents, it's this, it details this commitment that God has made to the nation of Israel and that Israel, he asked Israel to make to him. It's a covenant document similar to like a marriage covenant. Um, it exists, as God says, so that all the world would know that I am your God and you are my people. He says this often throughout the, the Torah to, to the Israelites. You do this, you follow this, so that everyone would know I am your God and you are my people. The Torah is the ultimate source of hope for the Jewish community. It is a constant reminder of the commitment that, that was made between them and God. And even though they fail to make, keep that commitment, uh, as we'll see, they fail constantly, the Torah reveals that God has not and will not uh, break his commitment to his people. So it's a source of hope. Um, and ultimately, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the story that, that both explains and seals this, this commitment. Um, sorry, I lost my place here. So, okay, so yeah, it's this covenant document. We got that, right? I'm trying to give a picture of, of how, they're, how they're looking. So why do we translate it as law? Why do we translate it as law? Well, because in the Torah, God gives a lot of commands. We know of 10, probably. We call these 10 commandments. But God actually gives, that's only the first 10. God gives uh, 613 in total. 613 commands in the Torah. Um, and, and these commands mean everything to the Jewish community. Uh, particularly the religious leaders. They, they would follow these commands every detail. Uh, they would know every single one. It was so important to them. As it says in the passage, you know, no, the dot and the iota, all right, they follow every single little tiny mark and, and detail in the command. Okay, all that is, is just incredibly important. It shapes their community. Uh, and then following the commands of the Torah for the Jewish people meant nearness to God. The more you followed, the nearer you were to God. And, and also the, the st more status you had within the community because it was a... It was a religious community, and, and so if you were able to follow all the laws and keep all the laws, you were also the most important in the community. So, so to reiterate, all right, the answer to the question, what, what is the Torah? It's a story that details God's desire to set apart this community of people, a community of people that would represent him to the world and ultimately be the vehicle of God's blessing to the world. It explains God's a covenant relationship, right, with his people, and it teaches them how to live, how to live as God's people uh, according to his will, according to his plan. It contains these stories and commandments uh, and is the single most important document for the Jewish people at the time. All right, the Torah is a big deal, okay? So what is the Torah? Uh, the second question, why does everyone think that Jesus is trying to get rid of this thing? Why, why do they think he's trying to abolish it? And to, to answer this question, I want us to do a, a thought experiment, okay? Um, uh, to preface this, you know, we're, you're going to pretend to be a Jewish rabbi. I want you to imagine yourself, and I'm going to help you imagine that. 
You're gonna imagine yourself as a Jewish rabbi. Um, and we often talk about the Jewish leaders, if you've spent uh, some time in, in church, um, we talk about the Jewish leaders kind of like the villains of the story, right? Jesus is the hero. Uh, they're always trying to cause problems and, and discredit him. Ultimately, you know, they, they press for him to, to get killed. Um, and they have their problems, right? Jesus confronts them a lot of time. But, but for a moment, we're going to try to see them in the best light possible, okay? Uh, because it's going to help us answer this question of, of why they thought Jesus was trying to get rid of, of the Torah, so we're going to imagine ourselves as, as Jewish rabbis, as teachers, okay? And, and the, the teachers of the Torah were, were people who every moment of every day were trying their very best to do exactly what God asked them to do. They know every command, and at least by appearance, they follow every command. So you're this teacher, and your whole life, a, a rabbi, your whole life you've been faithfully serving God and obeying his commands, as well as teaching others to do the same. You love God and you love his word. You love the Torah. Now, all of a sudden, this new teacher comes along and he talks about the scriptures very differently. He doesn't just teach God's laws, but he adds to God's law. Okay, right after Jesus finishes this long uh, sermon that we're, we're in right now called the Sermon on the Mount, the, the last line in Matthew 7, 28 through 29 says, Everyone was astonished by his teachings because he was teaching with authority, not like the other teachers and scribes. So you, as this, as this Jewish rabbi and, and all the other teachers, taught the Bible like it was the ultimate authority. Okay, you said, this is the authority, this is what we're going to follow, this is what it says, and, and we're going to do it. But Jesus taught with a new authority. And this is different than like a prophet saying, you know, I, I have a message from God. Jesus is saying... Yeah, the Torah is the word of God, but hear what I'm saying to you right now. That's the word of God too. And this is just as important. And you need to follow this. Jesus was calling people to a whole new way of living. On top of that, this new teacher goes around saying he's the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He, he comes bringing the kingdom of God. This is all, no other teacher talks like this. Then to make matters worse... He begins to break some of the commandments, commands that you as a rabbi have, have learned and kept and taught your whole life. He and his followers don't observe the Sabbath. They don't fast. He touches diseased and sick people, unclean people. You, you, know, you weren't supposed to do that. He spends time alone with women and includes them in his inner circle of followers. He eats meals and travels around with, with sinful people, tax collectors like his follower Matthew who's writing this. Uh, who would who betrayed the Jewish people, stole from them. That's what tax collector did. He was, he was a traitor. Uh, he definitely wasn't following the Torah. He spends time with, with prostitutes like Mary Magdalene, who, who she was with Jesus wherever he went. Of course, like, I, I mean, of course we would think that he was trying to get rid of the Torah. I mean, what else are we to think? I mean, this would be a shocking thing for, for us good Jewish rabbis who have lived our whole lives following this, this book, and now everyone's interested in this guy. Imagine how threatening a person like Jesus would be to you. Your whole purpose in life was to live and call others to live in accordance to the Torah, and this guy was now coming around, teaching all the wrong things and spending time with all the wrong people. All right, so 
we can understand why the people may have thought Jesus wanted to abolish the Torah, but Jesus says that's not what he's doing. Okay, and we have to take him at his word. He's not trying to abolish the law and the prophets. Instead, he came to fulfill them. So what does it mean when Jesus says he fulfills the Torah and the prophets? Well, first, there's the prophecies, and I'll just make a brief comment on that, um, even though we're focusing on the Torah. Uh, we could take time and look back through the prophetic books and, and pull out um, a number of prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. Matthew even does this. In the first five chapters, we talked about some of them. Seven times, Matthew interrupts the, the narrative that he is giving and says, hey, by the way, this happened to fulfill what the prophet said, or the prophet Isaiah, or Jeremiah. He, he does this. You can flip back through the first few pages of Matthew and see, you know, Jesus, he's, he's communicating, Jesus fulfills prophecies, the prophecy that points to the Messiah. When the prophet said he was going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, Jerry was, uh, Jesus was born of Mary in Bethlehem. When the prophet said he would be a Nazarene, um, Jesus was, grew up in, in Nazareth. So he fulfills the, the prophecies, and we, we get that. But how, how does he fulfill the Torah, the law? What, what in the world does that mean? I mean, Jesus, how does someone fulfill stories that happened thousands of years ago? How does one fulfill the Ten Commandments? These are supposed to be things that we continue to follow. They're not fulfilled. Well, first, uh, this implies that the Torah prior to Jesus was unfulfilled. As we established, the Torah is the story of how God sets apart this community of people, Israel, to represent him to the world, right? I'm saying this a lot. He represents them, uh, they represent God to the world by the way that God calls them to live, how they relate to God, how they relate to others. And they became the vehicle, or they were supposed to be the vehicle through which God would bless the world. It explains this covenant commitment made between God and Israel. Well, how do the people do? If you've read any of the Old Testament, uh, you probably know they don't do good. They do bad, okay? They fail over and over and over again to be what God has called them to be. And that's really the main theme throughout the Old Testament. God chooses Israel. Israel rejects God. God forgives Israel. Israel rejects him again. It's this cycle over and over and over again where every person that God has ever extended his love to has, has rejected that love. So Israel fails to fulfill their role as God's covenant people. And you would think that, you know, after all this time, God would just give up, right? Throw in the towel, maybe try making a covenant with a different uh, group of people. But God never does give up on them. Even when things are at their worst, God still remains faithful to this group of people that he's set apart. He continues, uh, he promises to continue to remain faithful to his commitment despite their failure. And we're going to look at a passage um, that, that makes this promise in Jeremiah 31. If you want to flip to it, you can, but I'm just going to read it here and just listen closely to what it says. A little context before um, I read this. It's, it's going to be Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. So bad decision after bad decision gets the, the nation of Israel split into two. Okay, they become two nations, Israel and Judah, and, and they're forced into exile. Okay, some of them go um, to Assyria. The Israel, kingdom of Israel goes into Assyria. The others are, become captives to the Babylonians. Uh, the, the kingdom of Judah goes to Babylon. And at this point, it, it pretty much looks like Israel is done. They'll just die out as slaves to foreign nations. They're back where they started, you know, when they were slaves in Egypt. 
and uh, things are not looking good. But during the exile, God continues to speak through these people called prophets. And, and there's this guy named Jeremiah, and he says this in, in verse 31, or God says this through him. So the Lord says, The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, even though I loved them as a husband loves his wife. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my law or my Torah on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors nor say to one another, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will forget their sins. So what is God saying here? Okay, the, old, the old covenant didn't work. And not because there was anything wrong with the covenant, not because there was anything wrong with God or his law, uh, it was actually the opposite of that. Because God is so good and his law is so good, the people failed over and over again to remain faithful to him. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with these people, but instead this time, uh, instead of simply giving them the Torah, I'm going to put the Torah on their minds. I'm going to write the Torah on their hearts. They are going to be transformed by my law. So God's plan, way before Jesus is, is teaching this, was to do something different with the Torah. It was never about getting rid of the Torah, but the relationship between uh, the Torah and God's people would change. Instead of something that they strive towards, it would beco uh, become something that drives them forward. You know, God's uh, not changing his law, but he, he wants to use his law to change us. And he does this through Jesus. So how does he do this? Well, Jesus fulfills the Torah by fulfilling our covenant commitment to God. Okay, he fulfills the Torah by fulfilling our covenant commitment to God. Jesus does what no other human could do. He remains faithful to God when everyone else failed over and over again. Jesus was the only one who could reciprocate the unwavering, perfect love that God shows to us. So, great, right? Jesus did it. We can just say, you know, let's be done with this and, you know, just, just live in that, right? Jesus fulfilled the law. Now we can just ignore it and, and move on, right? Well, no, uh, Jesus doesn't allow us to think that because in verse 18 it says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, the smallest little detail will pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches the others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Wait, like, what, what are you saying, Jesus? Like, what? Now we have to follow all these commandments in the Torah? Weren't you yourself even breaking these commandments? You know, when, when you didn't observe the Sabbath and, and do all these things, and, and now you're saying that we... Like, nothing's changed. We have to follow them all. And Jesus follows that up. He says, For I tell you, unless, the righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
unless you are more righteous, right, than the people who devoted their whole lives, the people we were imagining being, unless you are more righteous than the people who devote their whole lives to understanding and following the Torah, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And we have to be asking, who then? Who could possibly be that righteous? Who could possibly obey all the commands of the Torah? All right, like, like we talked about two weeks ago, the, the types of people that were in this crowd that Jesus was talking to, uh, people that Jesus says were blessed in the kingdom of God, these people weren't following the Torah. And besides, isn't, isn't this what we've been failing at forever anyway? Like, why, why is Jesus now saying this, that we have to follow all these things and, and be righteous and all that? I mean, isn't that why Jesus came in the first place, so that we didn't have to do what he's now asking us to do? Well, this is where the new covenant comes in, the, the Jeremiah 31 covenant that we read. God takes people who are far from God, who have rejected him, and he promises to put his Torah, his law, in their minds, to write it on their hearts. So that obedience to God is no longer a burden, but it flows out of who we are. Well, how does God do this? He does this through this absolute, absolutely crazy, unnatural, unconceivable thing called forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 38 says, I will forgive their wickedness. I will forget their sins. Now, we talk about forgiveness a lot, but I think we, we often miss uh, the truly transformative power of forgiveness. So, so again, we're going to do another thought experiment. Think about a time when you did something that really harmed someone close to you. Okay? If, bring that to mind. Hopefully you can think of something. Uh, if not, ask someone who knows you. So you really harm someone, a, fa- a family member, a friend, someone that you may not have an explicit covenant with, like, like a spouse, you, know, you might, but, but a friendship. I mean, there's an agreement there that, that we're going to love one another um, mutually. And, I mean, you really messed up. What you did caused damage in the relationship. It broke that bond between you. Where there was once closeness, there became distance. Does everyone have something? Okay. If you have a bunch of things, just pick one. Now, a couple things can happen here. Sometimes that brokenness is never repaired and there remains a distance in the relationship. I think we've, we've all experienced that at some point. What most often happens is over time, you earn trust back with the person that you wronged by gradually doing things uh, that somehow makes up for the wrong you committed. Okay, so you have to earn that trust back and kind of crawl your way back into that relationship. But occasionally this happens, and this is what we really need to focus on because this is what Jesus did for us. That person who you hurt on their own volition will move towards you and forgive, even though you don't deserve it. They cross that gap that you've created in that relationship, and they choose to forget the wrong that you committed. Essentially what they're doing is they're saying, my love for you is greater than the lack of love that you showed me. And I want to illustrate this. Uh, Daniel and Katie, we're going to get close, so come up here. Come, come, come. come. Had to choose a couple social distance. Just stand up here. Don't get close to me, though. Social distancing, right? No, I'm not sharing personal story. All right, get, get really close. Get, get really close. Get really close. Oh, 
Like how All right. close? That's fine. Right there. Okay. okay, so this is a picture of of when when you enter into a relationship with someone. Okay, you guys move close to each other in mutual love. All right, doesn't have to be a marriage relationship; can be anything. Are right, you move? You, you there's there's both both of you are. You can't just chase someone down and and make them love you, right? You you both move to towards each other in mutual love. The same is true for our relationship with God. Okay, God doesn't force us to love Him. Okay, He He sets up. Uh, opportunities for us to feel his love and reciprocate that love. But what happens, who wants to be the, the bad person in this one? Oh, good. You guys are both yeah. willing. Both like All right, we'll do, we'll do Daniel. All right. Okay. Daniel, Daniel did something to, to harm the relationship. All right, he did something that broke the, the commitment between him and Katie. And what happens there is Daniel moves away from Katie. So just take a couple steps back. All right. Now, forgiveness, okay, Katie has already loved Daniel. She's already done her part. But forgiveness is Katie, instead of waiting for Daniel to come back, is she moves towards Daniel and crosses that gap that he created. And what, what happens there? Because when, when a wrong is committed, we often think you have to make up for it. But when you forgive, when you actually forgive someone, Daniel's not making up for the wrong he committed. Katie is absorbing that wrong. Okay, she's taking that pain and saying, this doesn't need to be, to be made right because my love is greater than, than the pain that she caused. I'm moving towards you in forgiveness. That is what Jesus okay, does for us when he forgives. He, God, we, we moved away from God. We rejected God. We, our, our sin creates that distance. But Jesus came to us. Okay, thank you guys. You can go sit down. Appreciate the cooperation. So, I hope that I hope that makes sense. I, we I think we see this in Jesus' life most by by looking at the types of people who flock to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus are those who who have have failed to live a life that reflects the Torah. Okay, as the religious crowd says, why does he spend this time with all these sinners? The people that flock to Jesus are people who are not worthy of God's love. They and everyone around them knows it. Okay, there's no question as to what type of, of life these people lead. And they know what Jesus is about. It's not that Jesus is, is saying, no, you're good, just keep doing it. They, they know what Jesus is about. He talks about it all the time. But these are the people who follow Jesus, not the religious people. Not the righteous people. Why? Because even though they were not worthy of God's love, they were surprised to find that God's love had still come to them. Even though they were furthest from God, Jesus moved towards them, offering grace and forgiveness. When we truly recognize the divide that our sin has created between us and God, that our sin, in our sin we are stepping away from God and there's that gap there, when we recognize our inability to bridge that divide through our own good works and faithfulness, and when we truly feel the unmerited, unwavering God that, uh, love that God shows us through Jesus, obedience uh, is no longer a burden. Instead, it flows out of who we are. People transformed by the love of God, people who are forgiven. I don't know about you, but if you imagine that sort of scenario where you did something wrong and, and hurt the relationship and that if that person forgave you, 
um, you know, you probably didn't turn around and do the same thing again, right? I mean, because, because you felt that love, you know you didn't deserve to, to have that relationship repaired, so you don't want to do anything to break it again. And, and so that, that's kind of a picture of, of how God in forgiveness begins to write his law, his will on our hearts and in our minds. But we have to truly recognize this gap and we have to truly recognize how Jesus has bridged that gap. So now if you've accepted that forgiveness, what do you do? Do you, do you go through the Old Testament, memorize all the commands and, and just keep trying to follow them? Do they somehow get downloaded into your mind so all of a sudden you just know them all? I, you know, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here because first of all, you'd find very quickly that you are unable to follow most of these. Um, not because you're, you're weak-willed or anything like that, but I mean, these were written to a group of nomadic people thousands of years ago in the ancient Middle East. So a lot of these laws, cultural, they, they don't apply to our lives. So, so that's not it, right? There's gonna be a number of the 613 laws that we can't just simply can't follow. Secondly, Jesus and his followers didn't even follow all these laws. They were accused multiple times of, of violating the Sabbath, which is like one of the 10 main ones. You should know that. They're, they're on, you know, we want to put them on our uh, courthouses and that sort of thing. Um, th- that was a big deal for, for the Jewish people to see Jesus violating these laws. And so, so what is he saying? How are we supposed to follow these and, and what are we supposed to do? Well, in the following section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to break this down. What does it look like to live as a Jeremiah 31 person, as a new covenant person, a person that that has accepted the forgiveness offered by Jesus and now has the Torah embedded within them? What what does it look like to be transformed by the love, the unmerited, uh, unfailing love of God? Well, let me read these six statements that Jesus makes and um, I have them printed out in front of me because I don't, don't want to have to skip through. You can follow along uh, in Matthew 5. It's just right after our passage here. Jesus makes six statements to kind of illustrate what, what this looks like. Um, and I'll just make a few brief comments. Again, these are things we could have six sermons on, on you know, a sermon on each one of these and talk about them. So we're not going to hit everything. I'm trying to paint a big picture of like what, what this becomes and what it looks like. Um, so, so here are the statements. Jesus says, uh, starting in verse 21, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Hey, what is he quoting from? The, the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments. You, sh- you shall not murder. Whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, now this is Jesus, that a- everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So it's not just what you do to someone physically that matters to God. It's how you think about people that matter to him. And maybe for you, this, this commandment, do not murder, was, was not much of a concern, but how about don't be angry? I mean, that's a bit more difficult. And, and you know, why does it even matter? You can be angry with someone and they don't know. So no harm, no foul, right? Like, but, but Jesus says, no, holding anger against someone subjects you to the same judgment as murder. This is crazy, right? I mean, I get angry with people all the time, people I don't even know. I, and I don't even know if I can really control that. I mean, it just happens sometimes, right? Like, you, you're all of a sudden you're angry. I mean, how, like, how are we supposed to, to do this? Skip ahead to verse 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. 
Again, Jesus is not only concerned with what you do physically with someone, but how we think about people matters. Why, though? Why does it matter if I think about someone? Again, no one knows. Who does it hurt? Is Jesus really equating uh, having thoughts about people to, to actual adultery? How you think about people matters. Verse 31, it is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so this time Jesus isn't quoting from the Ten Commandments. So it's a little bit uh, uh, more obscure here. He's, he's taking a series of laws given later in Deuteronomy 24. And this is what's going on uh, briefly. God originally did not want the Israelites to get divorced. He didn't allow for them to, to get divorced. He, marriage was supposed to be permanent. It was supposed to reflect the covenant between God and his people. He wanted them to stay together. Uh, however, people, as we do, would always look for ways around the law, loopholes, uh, ways that you can kind of obey it, but, but not actually. And so what, what men would do who didn't want to be with their wives, they would just abandon her. So he wouldn't legally divorce her, but he wasn't fulfilling the, the covenant promise that he made to care for and provide for her either. Well, this put uh, the women in a really bad situation because uh, in the ancient Middle East, as actually some parts of the Middle East still today, women couldn't file for divorce. They couldn't typically find jobs or way to provide for themselves. And if they were legally married, they couldn't go and marry someone else. So God says, okay, if you're going to do this, if you're going to abandon your wife, at least just file for divorce so that she can move on and, and find another way to provide for herself. That's, that's what, where this law came from. This was done to protect the women who were so vulnerable in that culture and often treated just so unjustly in the ancient Middle East. But Jesus is saying that God's true desire for our lives is that we would keep our commitments, that we would not look for loopholes or ways to get around doing what is right. Okay, the, the, but the marriage important is commitment. Uh, the marriage commitment is important to God. It should be kept, not only legally, but in our hearts. How we treat our spouse and think about our spouse matters. Abandonment, whether legal, physical, or, or just simply emotional, is wrong. And Jesus is saying that we, we shouldn't do that. We should stay true to our commitments that we make in our relationships. A couple more here. Verse 33, you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, when you make an oath, uh, when you swear on something, follow through. Okay, that makes sense, right? But Jesus says, I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Okay, we shouldn't have to add to our word in order to make it believable, right? Everything we, we say should be said with honesty and integrity. We shouldn't have to say, no, I, I promise, or, or no, that like, like I'm, I really mean it. We, we should just speak honestly, okay? The last two I'll, I'll kind of just clump together here. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him... Uh, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love our enemies, okay? I, I mean, 
this is this is this is crazy. Praying for those who who persecute us. I mean, we've heard this stuff before, but but people hearing this for the first time, this is just just insane. I mean, not fight back or get vengeance on someone who harms you. This is also unnatural. Who could do these things? And just to drive the point home, Jesus in the last uh, line here in verse forty-eight says, "Therefore, be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect, as God is perfect." And I don't know about you, but I kind of got knocked out back six statements ago. Like I've failed at all of these and fail. I'll probably fail at, at many of them before I go to sleep tonight. Like, and, and but if, if you uh, got through those six and are saying, yeah, okay, I, I think I qualify here. I'm doing all right. Like I've never dealt with any of this. So I would imagine you don't think you're perfect like God. Okay, so Jesus, just, just in case uh, there's any question, you're supposed to be perfect as God is perfect. So this is uh, the, the dichotomy or the conflict of the kingdom. This is the, the, the thing we have to balance when we follow Jesus. And, and this is something that, that you just, I mean, it's going to be hard uh, as long as we live in this world. The, the thing we have to balance, it, it's unavoidable. Jesus actually wants us to live like this. Okay? He, we, we can't just say, uh, you'll shrug our shoulders and, and think, well, Jesus forgives us. We can't do all this, so why even try? Jesus actually wants us to, to live like this. He's actually describing how people should live within the kingdom he is building. He actually wants us to live like this, but at the same time, he also knows that we will fail, that we will fall short. We will feel anger towards someone. We will think about someone with lustful intent. We will fail to stay faithful to our commitments, both to God and to others. We will lie and mislead people. We will fail to sacrifice ourselves and humble ourselves before others. And we will fail to love all people, particularly those who do harm to us. We're gonna fail at these things, probably in the next couple hours, I would imagine for some of us. On the drive home, you get cut off, be angry. But every single time we fail, Every time we step away from God, as Daniel did from Katie, every time we break that commitment, that covenant commitment that God calls us to, and there's this divide between us and him, Jesus moves towards us in forgiveness. He erases the sin that separates us from God, and he invites us back into God's presence. He repairs the relationship that we have damaged by our sin, and when we truly receive that forgiveness, we are transformed more and more into his image. So that we, as forgiven, as restored people, as God's people, would reflect him to the world around us. So I'll conclude with this. Um, and we can, I don't know if you guys want to come, come up now. And so. Matthew 20, uh, I'm sorry. Um, with each of these commands that Jesus cites, what he is doing, okay? So each of these six commands, Jesus says, this is what you've heard, but I say this. This is what he's doing. He's trying to get us to move past the command itself and see the heart of God that is revealed through the command. Okay, what's the heart behind the command? The command is, is do not murder, but God's heart is that you wouldn't uh, uh, denigrate someone's humanity even in your thoughts. Okay, it's not just about taking someone's life. It's about how you view them as, as valuable humans creating God's image. So your thoughts about the matter. It's not, the command is, is do not uh, commit adultery, but 
the heart behind that, God's heart behind that, is that we wouldn't view others as, as uh, objects that we could take for our own satisfaction, even if it's in our mind. That we wouldn't take their appearance or their body and say, I can get pleasure from this, um, because that is thinking less of them. So we got to see the heart behind the command. Um, and, and likewise, uh, I'm sorry. So wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus just did this with the whole law, right? Well, he does. And, and I want to read it to you in closing here. Matthew 22, uh, 34 through 40. Matthew 22, 30 through, 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the Torah? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the Torah and the prophets. It's love. Love for God and love for others. Love is God's heart behind every command. God's ultimate desire for us is that we would choose to love him with everything that we have. And likewise, that we would love others as we love ourselves. And this means not putting yourself before anyone, whether in your thoughts, such as anger or lust, or or in your actions, cheating, stealing, deceiving, murdering. We love the other as, as ourselves means, means that we, we, don't, we put other people's needs, other people's desires ahead of our own. We love God and we love others. And when we do that, we fulfill the law. Paul writes in Romans 13, 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And all the other commandments are summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. So as a community shaped by and around Jesus, let's be a community that's known for our love. To do that, we must first receive the undeserved and unwavering love of God. So I'm gonna pray for us, and I encourage you uh, to to pray along with me on your own, and and we are gonna receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. Maybe this is your first time actually doing that, um, acknowledging your need for Jesus and his forgiveness. Maybe you do this every day. But it is so important that we regularly recognize the divide that sin creates between us and God and the radical grace that Jesus shows us by moving towards us in love and erasing that divide. So let's pray and then we'll worship. Uh, God, we just, uh, right now, Lord, I pray that you reveal to us um, our brokenness that uh, every day we do things that should um, just, just tear us away from, from you and the love that you offer forever. There is such a, a divide uh, between us and you in the way that we act and the way that we think. But as we recognize that, God, I pray that you would reveal to us uh, the love that you extend to us, the great unimaginable love that we would... Uh, recognize that in a new way, God. I thank you for sending Jesus down here to, to show us that love, to move towards us when we've moved away. And I thank you that he continues to do that every single day, God. I pray that you'd forgive us 
for, for anything we do, whether in action or thought, uh, that would separate us from you. And I pray that we would, we would just receive the forgiveness, the grace that, that Jesus offered us. Um, that, that we would recognize that he's absorbed the, the, the damage that we've done. Uh, and he's made a way for us to be in your presence again. So as we worship God, I pray that that you would just make that a fresh, fresh thing in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.